Well, good morning, Bethel Church. That's good. I'll take that. That's a good start. Good morning from you. Appreciate it. Well, uh, guest speakers are obliged to say that they're grateful to be here, and but I really mean it. I'm really thankful to be here. I think this is maybe the third time or so I've preached here. Uh, Pastor Chris took a chance on me way back when he first came. I think he just listened to one of my sermons, found a connection online, invited me up, and uh, I preached here. And uh, Pastor Chris and I have formed a deep, strong friendship. Um, I say it a little bit tongue-in-cheek because there's no, really no comparison, but there's many times when I, I'm talking to other pastors and leaders and I say, well, the best pastor in Delaware is at Bethel Baptist Church in Wilmington, and I mean that. I've said that multiple times. I'm so thankful for Chris. He's a great friend to me. He's a great leader, um, and I've enjoyed worshiping with you this morning. I love how intentional and clear this church is on the truth of Scripture and the gospel, having our hearts encouraged by those songs this morning. Um, the door of hope is great. Uh, I'm actually on the board of a similar organization. We'll talk about that uh, a little bit later in the sermon, New Day Pregnancy Care Center down in Dover. Uh, the foster and adoption thing, the fund in your church is super cool. I'm taking that back to my church, and I'll be talking to my elders about that. So I'm here this morning just really grateful. I know I'm among friends and uh, encouraged by you all. And hopefully uh, this talk, uh, I know you're a well-taught church, and so um, the tone of this is just more to come alongside and encourage you hopefully this morning uh, in these issues pertaining to the sanctity of human life uh, and the various aspects that that touches. So if you'd allow me to pray again, I'd like to do that, and then we'll jump into the scriptures this morning. Father, I thank you for... <clears throat> your presence with us through the person of the Holy Spirit who was poured out through the exalted Jesus Christ. Christ, in a sense, first action being established of, as King of kings and Lord of lords is to pour his spirit out on his people on that day of Pentecost. And ever since, all those who have trusted in Jesus receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord Jesus, this morning, if there's those who don't know you, that, that their hearts would be open and they would believe on you and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And for those of us who have received the Spirit, I pray that our hearts and minds would be open to his working, that he would cause us to see Jesus in fresh ways that would be transformative to move us from one degree of glory to the next so that because we've gathered and we've worshipped and we've prayed and we've acknowledged your presence, Lord Jesus, we might be more like you and more committed to your causes and your kingdom. So I pray that that would happen this morning, that we'd be stirred up, motivated, and changed, that we wouldn't just be hearers of the word but doers. In Jesus' name I pray. And all God's people said... Amen. So the title of the sermon is A Community of Life in a Culture of Death. And so I just wanted to talk briefly about the culture of death, although I don't have a, although the video was great. I didn't know the video was going to be shown. Lots of statistics. You know, statistics, which I always struggle to say that word, um, aren't that motivational and aren't that powerful. But, you know, they have their place. And so when I say culture of death, I'm not talking about the fact that all of us are going to die. In a sense, the whole world is in a culture of death since the Garden of Eden. I'm talking about uh, an, an unhealthy, almost like an immoral relationship to death. I'm talking about like homicide. You know, and just again, simple, you know, CDC reports, you know, almost 20,000 people a year in this country are just flat out killed. 
Okay, that's a culture of death, that number. And then, you know, kind of the big one that gets talked about this weekend, and rightly so, definitely rightly so, is the issue of abortion. And since 1973, I think we're north of 59 million, you know, abortions in this country to say nothing of the worldwide impact. And so, you know, those numbers are what they are. Uh, you know, we've got a culture that is pushing more and more uh, on the issue of euthanasia. If you're no longer functional to society, either too elderly or maybe disabled or handicapped, it's like, well, maybe we should just end those people's lives. Uh, beyond just, you know, when you talk about a culture of death, we know life isn't life, life is more than just breathing, right? We have that phrase, you say, well, if, if you really live, you know, man, you haven't really lived until you've had this coffee. I don't drink coffee, so I have no idea what that would be. Or you haven't really lived until you've done this. So we know living is more than just staying alive and breathing. And so along with this idea of having true and abundant life, which is a common phrase in pregnancy care centers, you know, you got all kinds of a culture where the abundant life, a life of human flourishing is assaulted in our culture regularly. You talk about abuse, assault, racism, classism, sexism, all of those things are associated with or are cousins to death. It's a culture of death that we live in. And so, you know, I think in 2020, in the beginning of 2021, I don't think as a preacher I need to do a whole lot to convince you that there's darkness, there's a lack of dignity, and we are living in a culture of death. And so the question, you know, I'm kind of asking this morning is, so what do we as Christians in the midst of such a culture of death and dishonor and darkness, what do we do in the midst of that? What can we do? And I think the answer, again, to go along with the title of the sermon, hence the title, is that we're supposed to be a community of life. We're the, the church is supposed to be a little, a little pocket uh, of God's presence in the midst of a, of a dark culture. That's Philippians chapter 2. He says that you are to shine as lights or shine as stars. It's like the black expanse is behind you and the church is supposed to be a star that people can come and see. It's okay, there's light instead of darkness. There is dignity instead of dishonor. And there's this promotion of life and human flourishing Connected to the church congregationally and certainly individually as we would scatter into the various places that God has called us. So, okay, that's what the church is supposed to be, a community of light and life and dignity. But how do we do that? And I think, you know, there's a sermon note page somewhere or something. There's a big idea on there. The way that that happens is that the church must be conformed to the image of God. The image of God in Genesis 1, we'll see there in a couple of minutes, is how God created and established man and woman to have flourishing in the entire cosmos. And they were to do that in His image. And so we need to be, in a sense, reconformed or reformed to the image of God, and that happens now through the capital I image of God, through the person of Jesus Christ, which is why I asked the, the men to read the scriptures from Colossians chapter 3, as we set our minds and faces toward Jesus Christ. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things which are above. Well, what's above? That's where Christ is. Set your mind there. And then all of these behaviors will flow out of it. It talked about love and peace and patience and kindness that's going to push against the darkness and the abuse and the culture of death that we have. And so, you know, nothing... Well, it's terribly profound in one sense. 
to be transformed by the risen and exalted Christ, by having your eyes fixed on him is terribly profound. But I'm thankful that in a church like this, this isn't the first time you're hearing that, praise God. So, I've got three points to kind of explore this big idea that if the church is going to be faithful and effective to push against that culture of death, we must be formed into the image of God by the power of the risen Christ. We're going to look at that in three different ways. The first way that we're going to look at it is we're going to look at how the uh, image of God is the foundation of a sanctity of life. The, the image of God is the absolute bedrock. It's the foundation. Then we're going to look at how that image of God is distorted. And then we're going to look at it in the third one, and we're going to see how it's restored through faith in Christ. So very simple. The foundation of it, the distortion of it, and the restoration of it. Now, Chris and I were having lunch. Uh, I don't know, it was when it snowed up here. I'm from Syracuse, New York. It's like, if you say when it snowed, you're like, well, which day of the week was it? That would be every day of the week because of Lake Effect. I think it snowed once in the past two years here. So whatever day it was it snowed just a few weeks ago, Chris and I went to the Christiana Mall area here, and all these places were closed down. We couldn't get in, and finally he went into Chili's, and we were able to sit down and eat in Chili's. And we talked for, I don't know, two hours or longer. It was just an awesome lunch, and I think I paid. Okay. <laughs> he usually paid. I don't know. Somehow it came out, and just in the midst of that, you know, preacher talk, he's like, <clears throat> I'm not a big fan of alliteration. And I, and I, I didn't say anything about it. I usually alliterate stuff just because it's easy for me to remember. So I'm, when I was going through this outline, I was like, well, man, I better not alliterate it because, you know, Chris doesn't like alliteration. But it's actually easy to remember it with the three Fs. The foundation of the image of God, the fracture of the image of God, and fixing the image. Isn't that better? Isn't that better than trying to remember foundation and distortion and rest? No. Foundation, <laughs> fracture, fix it. That's going to be the outline for this morning. Got it? So when you have your little outline that you see that's printed on your website, just fix it. Because the FFF is just better. All right. So... So let's look at the foundation of the image of God uh, as the foundation for the sanctity of life. So that phrase gets used a lot. Okay, what does it mean, sanctity of life? The word sanctity just means it's sacred. It's special. It's not common. It transcends common everyday things. And so what we as Christians are saying is that human life in and of itself, as, as Tyler said, intrinsically, just by the very fact that you are human, you are sacred. And things that are sacred, you need to be careful with. You can't treat them however you would want to treat them. You know, it's not like a, a, a bowl that you might, you know, be uh, not careful with and you drop and you break it all, just get another bowl. No, the, the sanctity of human life means that every human being is precious and worthy of honor and dignity. We, we as Christians say that all human beings in the video, from the embryo to the, the oldest among us, the disabled, whatever, if you are human, you are sacred. And so people ought to treat you with care, carefulness, compassion, and dignity. Every single, uh, you know, the fact, not everybody believes this, by the way. You know, as the, the woman from the Door of Hope said, you know, th there is opposition to this view. And, and actually, if you're a, a secularist, you know, they have a lot of trouble figuring out where do human rights come from? Because if there's nothing transcendent, then, you know, human beings are highly evolved animals and, you know, how do we give them rights and we make them up and we, you know, we, they change with fads. But as Christians, we have this gift 
that we know that every one of us is important because of the transcendent God who has stamped His image upon us. And so, that's obviously in the very beginning of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, He made uh, human beings male and female in His image. So what does image mean? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Um, I'll give you a little bit more alliteration. It's going to come at you in waves here. I think one of the things we have to say about the image of God is that there's a unique relationship or closeness that human beings share that nothing else in creation shares. There's a relational closeness that human beings have that nothing else has. Even in the way that God created in the Genesis 1 and 2 account, you know, he, he's creating everything, and when he gets to human being, it stops, and he deliberates, and he says, let us make. And so, you know, there's a debate. I don't, you know, however you want to debate this. Is he addressing the heavenly court, or is that a Trinitarian statement? I think it's a Trinitarian statement, but that's not the main point. He deliberates, let us make man in our image, and then you get to chapter 2, and he, he creates man from the dust of the ground. He breathes in. It's like face to face. And so there's this relational closeness. Uh, in the ancient Near East, the, the, this idea of an image was fairly common. And uh, let's, you know, t if you're familiar with the story of Daniel, go to Daniel chapter 3. It's not actually Daniel. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they make that big image. Same word. Okay? And you're supposed to bow down to the image. Well, in bowing down to the image, you're actually bowing down to Nebuchadnezzar himself because there's a connection, there's such a closeness to mistreat or disrespect the image is to disrespect the source of that image. In that case, it happened to be Nebuchadnezzar and the golden idol. Does that make sense? So when we say that all human beings are made in the image of God, one of the things we're definitely saying is that it, at least there's the opportunity and we were created and designed for intimacy and closeness with our Creator. All right. The second thing about being made in the image of God is there's this calling. In Genesis chapter 1, God exercises authority over the chaos, and He makes the cosmos from it. He does it with the power of His Word, and He brings order out of it. Okay? You know, he's, he has sovereignty and rule. And he says, let there be light. And okay, there's rule. And separate the waters from above and the waters below and the dry land and the sea. And he, he's doing all this. He's ruling and reigning. And then to be made in his image, then he says, okay, I'm going to make you in my image and now rule and subdue the earth. In the same way, it's reflecting. We're reflecting God. We're called to do that. He's ruler. Now we as human beings, male and female, all of us are kings and queens, so to speak, of the creation. And we are to exercise rule and subdue it and cultivate it and cause human flourishing. And so to be made in the image of God is to have this intrinsic worth, this connection with God, and also this calling to rule, subdue, fill, and cause flourishing on the planet. All, of course, under the authority and the sovereignty of God himself. It's as if he is the king and we are the vice regents, male and female. And lastly, and this one's a little bit debated, but I think it's there. Not only is there a closeness and a calling, but I think there's a capacity. If, in fact, we have the opportunity to have this relationship, God gave us the capacity to do it. Human beings have a unique capacity to know God. Even, you know, and if you think about, okay, well, infants may not, or you may wonder, well, what about the disabled? Well, think about the whole storyline of God. They're human. What can Jesus do in the new heavens and new earth. He can restore and redeem, so the capacity is there, and he, they will know him just as well, if not better than I may know him. And so capacity. So every single person that you see 
has a capacity to know God, and they have the capacity to fulfill the calling. And so to be made in the image of God then is uh, it's sacred because nothing else, no one else, no other being, so to speak, exists. Not even the angels are in the same way as us have this unique position and intrinsic calling before God that we are image bearers. Every person you see. And so then, let's get to the effects of this then. So what does that mean for, you know, how does the Bible apply this? Okay, everyone's made in the image of God. This is what it is. What, where's kind of the payoff? And there's three things I want to do. I want to go to one extreme, the next extreme, and then into the middle. And again, this is all foundational stuff. If we're going to get passionate about doing something about a culture of death, we need to be absolutely sure and clear on the foundation and its effects. So that's what the image of God is. Now, what are the effects? How does this work? And go to, go to Genesis chapter 9 in your Bible if you have it. Genesis chapter 9. I'm smiling because this is a controversial issue. Guest speaker, show up, talk about capital punishment. Is everybody comfortable now? Good. I'm actually not going to talk about capital punishment. You can talk to your elders and Chris about that when I leave. However, I'm going to be a generalist and a minimalist here. At the very least, because you're made in the image of God, your life should be protected. So in Genesis 9 and verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed, for God made him in his own image. Again, you can debate you know, whether or not this verse supports or doesn't support capital punishment. I think that's a worthy conversation to be had. It certainly needs to be held in tension with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount stuff about turning the other cheek. Okay, So that's where that debate among Christians rests. But at the very least, what God is doing in the new world here, because this is right after the flood, God is instituting this thing where he doesn't want the violence that was pre-flood to run rampant again post-flood. And so he's saying, because you're made in the image of God, there's this protection that's being made for human life. So that's the first extreme. You can't kill other people because other people are made in the image of God. So glad I came to church this morning. I didn't know that. You do know that. And yet there's still 59 people, 59 million people since 1973 that have been killed. Now, again, I'm not saying that that is necessarily the church's fault. But we are in a culture of death, and what are we going to do about it? The church needs to be absolutely clear and absolutely solid and absolutely convinced that this is just out of bounds. And so we see that in Genesis chapter 9. Cannot take other people's lives. This life is being protected because of the image of God. Now let's go to, you know, that, that seems extreme. Okay, you know, that's one of the big sins, murder. Okay. Go to James chapter 3. This is the other end of the spectrum in terms of how, how functional is this idea of the image of God in day-to-day. James chapter 3, starting in verse 7. For every kind of beast and bird, reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless 
evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Image and likeness are synonyms. What is James saying here? He's saying that with your tongue, you can slander people, and that's deadly. It's that deadly poison, right? And so the, the image of God, you know, I don't mean to say this in any kind of silly way. You know, like we, most of us don't have a problem with day in, day out, like murdering other people. I'm not trying to be funny. The image of God covers that. It protects us from, you know, from being killed, our, our very life. But all the way at the other end of the spectrum, the image of God is so valuable that every single human being that you see around you, every single one of them, young or old, rich or poor, Asian, white, black, Hispanic, disabled, Republican, Democrat, are made in the image of God, and that is so important and so valuable that you cannot even slander them. You are to speak evil of no one, James says in chapter 4. Why? Because they're righteous and they do the right thing all the time, or you like them, or you know, no. You can't speak evil of anyone or slander them in a sense, kill their reputation because they're made in the image of God. Have we got the image of God category that deep? You know, you think about how much, you know, you want to talk about the number of, uh, of abortions, which is difficult to even say. How much slander is going on? Millions upon millions. And that is part of a culture of death. When you can slander folk, you know, you can kill their reputation. You know, that's what it starts to, the, the speech leads to the actions. Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount that, that that anger and that slander resides in the heart first. When you're angry without a cause, it's as if the same as murder. And so what we're not recognizing day in and day out is that every single person you run across is valuable to God because they are made in His image. So that's the extremes. That's like, okay, there's the one end, okay, murder, that's a big deal, but oh man, it's all the way to slander. But kind of in the middle, there's an interesting uh, passage, a section in Proverbs, and then we'll have to move on to the next point. I promise they'll be shorter. Founda you know, always got to be careful when you lay the foundation, all right? And when you build on that, it's a little more streamlined. If you want to turn to Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 31, I'll just read it for you. We're going to see how the image of God kind of connects with this idea of classism or the other type of person. Like it could be rich or poor, it could be, you know, black or white, it could be an ethnic thing, it could be a socioeconomic thing, but here it's the specific category is the rich and the poor. Proverbs 14, 31 says, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. Behind, I know it doesn't say the word image or likeness there, but behind the sage's advice here is this idea that the poor man is made in the image of God. He's got a close relationship to God, so close, in fact, that if you insult or mock or marginalize or ignore the poor, you're doing that to God. It's image language. If you go to 
chapter 17 and verse 5, you see another repetition of this in Proverbs. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. There it is again. And then he sets them side by side in Proverbs 22, verse 2. The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. And so what the, and again, so I think behind that idea of the maker is the idea of the image bearer. Okay? Whether you're rich or poor is more superficial than the foundational reality that you're made in the image of God. Think about the justice system. If rich people get lighter penalties for the same crime as the poor people, we say that's unjust. Why is it unjust? Well, because they're both the same at the bottom foundationally. They're both in the image of God, and so you, you can't treat them differently. So if you treat other people differently for a superficial reason, and by superficial don't mean shallow, it's just not as deep as the image of God reason. That's called the Imago Dei. So more important and deeper than the reality that I am a male is that I'm in the image of God. More important that my wife and three children are all female. And I have two dogs, and guess what they are? Female. And I coach soccer. Guess what gender? Female. So, and a lot of estrogen around me. More important than the fact that they're female is that they're image bearers. So there should be an equality between the genders. Same thing when it comes to your ethnicity. Is it important? Well, is it important that I'm male? Yeah, it's important. Is it important you feel? Yeah, it's important. Is it important that I'm white? Yeah, it's important. Is it important that someone may be black or Latin or whatever? Yeah, those, those are important things, but not as important as image bearers. Is it significant that I might be wealthy? Yeah, there's significant there's ramifications. I have responsibilities if I have money. Is there a, a significance of the fact that I'm Yeah, those are significant, but not as significant as that you're an image bearer. And so we ought to be treating one another on the foundational level and not, you know, the substructure, not on the structure. Does that make sense? So image bearing and how we treat each other, all the way from like killing people to slandering people to important human distinctions that we have, foundational to all of it is the image of God. You know, C.S. Lewis says, you know, you'd be shocked if you ever saw what the person you're talking to, well, God will make them to be in the, in the new heavens and new earth. What he's going to do with his image is going to be unbelievable. You get a foretaste of it in Jesus Christ. Imagine what a difference that would make if every single day when you were tempted to say or do something, you thought, image bearer, image bearer. Right, girls? Come home. This person said, this. are they image bearer? Yeah, they are. Okay, that's going to... There's still issues that you've got to work through, but you do it from the foundational level that these people are worthy of our respect and our dignity because they're stamped with the image of God. Foundational. All right. So, the image of God means that we treat all people with respect, with dignity. I love that word. I love the words dignity and nobility. It's actually what I think of when I think of Chris. He's a dignified dude. <laughs> Respect, dignity, even love. Jesus pushes it even further in the Sermon on the Mount. You're to love other people, even if they're your enemy. That's what we were created and designed for, all human beings. So now, what happened then to this image? If this image was placed by God, and, and, and imagine what a world would be like if, if everyone treated everyone that way. 
be a completely different world, obviously. So what's gone wrong in the world? What's happened to this image? How come we can't reflect it? <laughs> I thought it was funny, too. I was preaching on this topic, and I'm pretty sure Pastor Chris's blog is called Reflection. Is that right? He's all up in this. He loves this stuff. So hopefully I'm doing justice to, you know, living up to his calling there. But So what, what went wrong with this image? How come image bearers treat image bearers, you know, with darkness and, and death and abuse and slander and all that? And the short answer to that is, is that when you reject the source, the images, you know, you reject the source, you're going to mistreat the images. It's another way of saying, when you ignore the source, God, then those whom you create in his image, if you, if you can reject him, you can reject them. If you can spurn and you hate him and you refuse him, you can spurn and hate and refuse the image bearers. And so it's a worship problem that leads to the people problems. And you see that in Genesis chapter 1. They want to become God. That's a worship problem. And then Adam and Eve. And so most likely, if you've got marriage tension, somewhere, tension is another word for conflict or whatever, there's a worship problem that's leading to the conflict. And this is consistent all the way throughout the scriptures, throughout the, the history of Israel. Just give you a couple of illustrations and examples of it. You know, right, right after uh, Adam and Eve, of course, is Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel, the first homicide, fratricide, actually. Why? Because Cain had a worship problem. He didn't worship God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so then he was, in a sense, rejected and cast down from his relationship with God, and so he kills Abel. In the history of Israel, you see this a lot. They, they start to worship the other gods around them, and then they begin to imitate the behaviors of those people around them. That formula is consistent. We'll see it even when we get to the New Testament, but if you have a scriptures again with you, I know we're jumping around a little bit, we will get to Colossians 3 and make our application there. But in 2 Kings chapter 17, this is when the northern kingdom falls to Samaria, Assyria. And they give the reason in 2 Kings 17, 7, and this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, and they feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And in the customs of, those, of that, the kings of Israel practiced. The people of Israel did secretly against the Lord things that were not right. They built high places in their towns. And so he talks about their idolatry. And so skip down to verse number 17 now. And they burned their sons and daughters as offerings. Did evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. That connection of the Old Testament offering of the children in the fires to Molech has often been made to the issue of abortion in our day, and I think it's rightly so. You know, the altar of convenience, the altar of comfort, pursuing success in this world, and this child is inconvenient, and they're going to limit my success, and so I'm going to, I'm going to end the child's life. The worship problem before it's a people problem. Now, 
not just that issue, though. As I've said, I, one, I know, you know, again, I, I'm on the board of the Pregnancy Help Center in Dover, so I, I, this abortion issue, is a, it's, in a sense, you could call it the issue of our day, but there are other issues of the day. And I, I did want to kind of broaden that a little bit this morning. I want to make sure the, when we thought about the sanctity of life, we weren't just, I mean, it's worthy of all the attention. Uh, absolutely, abortion would be, but uh, it, it is bigger. You know, there's, there's racial issues, there's gender issues, and, and those things are connected to the sanctity of life as well. And if we're going to see flourishing in the culture, there needs to be flourishing in the church. We need to be aware of those things. And so not only was Israel judged and punished because they worshiped false gods and it, it led to infanticide in their day, and God uh, loathed that and judged them for it, but there's other sins that are connected with that as well. And it's in Ezekiel chapter 16 and, and verse number 48. And Ezekiel 16 is just a tough chapter. I mean, it's a strong chapter. So it's a long one, but in here we see other reasons why God would judge his people and send them into exile. And the king's passage was for the northern tribe. This is for the southern tribe of Judah, which is very similar. But listen to what he says to them in verse 48 of chapter 16. The prophet Ezekiel says, As I live, declares the Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. He compares the people of God and their sins to the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. So, of course, we think that's going to be sexual sin, and it is, but that's not what he highlights. She and her daughters had pride, <laughs> excess of food, prosperous eaves, and did not aid the poor and the needy. Israel was all caught up in worshiping the other gods around them, and it led to all kinds of disobedience and rebellion against God. Certainly, infanticide would be one of the things that brought God's judgment down. But another thing that idolatry does is it calluses you to the needs of other people around you who are made in the image of God just as you are and are deserving of your compassion and your generosity. Sodom didn't just have a sexual issue. They had a social issue in that they didn't care for the poor. They were proud. The, you know, one of the things that the image of God does is it levels the playing field. If you're proud, it's because you have a bad view of the image of God. You're not better than me. I'm not better than you because we're both made in the image of God. I'm better than you. I deserve this money. I'm going to keep this. I'm going to have excess of food. Meanwhile, I'm going to ignore you and feel good about it because I'm better. That's, you know, we don't say that. I, I just wish to I'm not giving this to you because I'm better than you. Okay, thank you. At least you're honest with me why you're not generous. The image of God levels the playing field, brings about humility, and is the kind of a, a root or a fountain by which we start extending compassion and generosity to those around us. And so now you start talking about issues of classism and, and sexism and racism. You see how the image of God, if we get it deep in our hearts and minds, can, can cause flourishing in those contexts as well. You know, I kind of love that in our culture, we have sanctity of life and Martin Luther King Jr. like back to back. The issues are related. My birthday is actually January 15th and share it with Martin Luther King Jr. I've always felt honored by that and thankful that it was a good reminder for me personally. But So the distortion or the fracturing, to go back to the second F there, if you're tracking, is a worship problem. We love and trust and admire and value other created things, usually ourselves, and that is what contributes to the culture of death. 
And the people of God are called to be light and love and life in those cultures. And the nation of Israel was tempted to be like everyone else around them. But it wasn't just the Old Testament. I mean, go to the New Testament. Read the book of Corinthians. What, were the, what was the Corinthian church struggling with? They wanted to be like the people around them. Galatia, same thing. Philippi, same thing. Bethel Baptist Church in Wilmington. I know you're struggling to be like the culture around you, to value the same things. And when the church gets sucked into that, we lose our witness. We, we come downstream with a culture of death and dishonor. And we lose our dignity and our nobility. And we say and do things that shame the name of Jesus. And we need to push back against that and value and honor Jesus. And as we behold him, we become like him. And we're sacrificial, and we're noble, and we're dignified. I mean, one of the things I, you know, there's all kinds of things I love about the narratives of Jesus. One of the things I love about Jesus is how noble he was in his death. Slander, misrepresentation, this, and he just stood there and took it. With dignity and nobility. On the cross, dignity. I mean, in a, a moment of incredible nakedness and shame, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. That's my Messiah. I'll worship him. And when we behold him, it creates a different culture because it creates a different heart. And this is the last one. How does it get fixed? How does it get restored? And this is where we're in Colossians chapter 3. Because of COVID, our churches, we used to meet in a school and the schools won't allow us in there. I mean, per, I'm very wise and good that they're doing that, trying to help the virus. So we're meeting at five o'clock in a, in a different church building. And uh, we've also tried to manage some of our service time <laughs> to about a little over an hour. So I've been preaching about 30 minutes. I've been trying to preach 30 minutes. And Chris said, oh, you have 45 here. I said, oh, it's going to be great. What, my time's almost up? My, man, that went faster than I thought. I'm back at it. So we've got a couple minutes left. I think we'll make some good application, and the Lord help us to apply it and be doers of the word. So how do we fix this? And Colossians chapter 3 is just an incredible chapter. This is who you are, Bethel Church. If you're a Christian, this is who you are. You've been raised with Christ. And if that's true, you should seek the things that are above, where Christ is. That's where our gaze should be fixed, day in and day out. I know this is a season of Bible reading plans. We launched one for our church. I'm loving it. Lots of people are engaging in it. I think you should read your Bible every day. However, what I know you should do every day is renew your heart and your mind with who you are in Jesus Christ. You should wake up in the morning and you should tell yourself, I am dead. <laughs> I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me every day. Renewing your heart and your mind. Fixing your gaze on Jesus again. That's why you should be in the Word. Because if you're reading the Old Testament, Jesus says, that's all about me. That's, the, that's Christ concealed. If you're reading in the New Testament, it's Christ revealed. And so you need to be in the Bible so you can see Jesus. 
and Christian fellowship, you see Jesus in the other brothers and sisters in Christ. And so fellowship is obviously very important. So if you've been raised with Christ, seek Christ. He's seated at the right hand of God. I mean, each phrase here. Set your mind on things that are above and not on the things of the earth. That idolatry problem of comfort and convenience and success and security and control and all of those kind of deep idols, as Tim Keller would describe them, we need to turn our eyes from those earthly things and get them, get our eyes, the eyes of our heart on Christ. For you have died. Your real life, sanctity of life, is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ appears, then you will appear with him in glory. So, put to death these things. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. There you go, you see it. God's wrath is coming on. You saw that in the Old Testament. God's wrath came because they were idolatrous and it led to a destructive, dark behavior. You've been made alive in Christ. That's who you are. You shouldn't do right things because it's the right thing to do. You should do right things because you've been made alive with the risen Christ. Verse 9, don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. I believe that's a reference to the new man, Christ, the second Adam. You've put on Christ, and you're being renewed in the knowledge after the image of the Creator. So there it is. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ the first time and then consistently throughout the rest of your journey with Jesus, you're being renewed and transformed into Jesus' likeness. And Jesus is the author of life and righteousness and love. And so as you fix your gaze on him, you individually become a person who now pushes back against a dark and, and decaying culture, a culture of death, with the light and the love of Jesus. And so Bethel, resolve in your souls day in and day out that you are going to fix your eyes on Jesus and help those around you to do the same. Look what he says in verse 11. So you've been renewed after the image of the Creator. Here then there's no Greek or Jew circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, Christ is all and in all. Again, it's the egalitarian statement about the church. Your heart and mind should be so renewed in Christ that if you were a slave, you could fellowship with a free man, and if you were a free man, you could fellowship with a slave. You need to keep seeking renewal until that happens. You need to keep seeking renewal until you love Republicans or Democrats, whichever one you happen to be, inside the church. Don't you think it's great that in Jesus' 12, he had the tax collector, Levi Matthew, and then he had uh, Simon the Zealot? <laughs> they had two different political views toward Rome. <laughs> one was like, I love Rome. They're feeding my, you know, they're lining my pocket. The other was like, I hate Rome. I want to kill them all. Jesus says, you both come and follow me because the kingdom of God and me as the king transcends both and you can be together. What? Renew. So the application to this, the first and primary application of this sermon is this. You as a believer have the privilege and the responsibility every day to renew your heart and mind in Jesus Christ. Moms and dads, creatively and consistently do this with your children. We have this thing in our house. 
Every day when the kids leave, remember who you are. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. It's a statement to remember who they are in Jesus. Now I've started adding, and the story that you're in. And one of them turned around and goes, that's new. I said, that's also good. Keep going. <laughs> remember who you are in Jesus Christ. A couple other things of application to close. When we think about specifically the issue of sanctity of life and unborn children, and when we think specifically about the issue of racism and how we treat one another differently based on our ethnicity and our experiences, I think one of the most important things that you can do, and this is very practical now, is get close. Proximity to pain changes you. You've got to get close. Again, as I thought, how could I motivate? How could I encourage? I could throw stats and figures at you, and that would require a bunch of research, though, and I, I didn't want to do it. <laughs> I do know this. If you get close to the issues, you will be moved. The prophet Jeremiah said that. My eyes saw and my heart turned. Nehemiah, when he went back and saw how the nation had been in, in, uh, disheveled, he went back and saw it. He went and did something about it. So I would encourage you to do this. I put my New Day Pregnancy Center board hat on. Go to the center. Try to talk to the men and women who are involved and see if it doesn't do something in your heart. Stop tweeting about it or Facebooking about it or whatever it is that you're doing about it and get proximate. When we talk about some of the issues of, uh, of race and um, I actually just had lunch with one of your members here, Adam Kramer. You know, when we talk about the racial issue, you know, black to white or white to black or whatever, whichever, you know, there's racism all over the world. But when you, when you talk about that issue, like, get in. Make the uncomfortable step. And when you get there, don't be like Job's friends. When you get to the New Day Center, when you get to, you know, with the Green Bray Project, don't act like you know anything. Just listen and receive and where there's pain, mourn it. Man, as Christians, we need to recover mourning. Mourn it. Pray about it. And show up again. And listen some more. And mourn and pray and mourn and pray until the Holy Spirit leads you to then take action. Get close. The uh, director for New Day is a member of our church, and so I knew I was coming here, and so I thought one of the ways I could get you close is just share a couple testimonies of what's going on there with the center and kind of close with these two of them. A client came into the center for a pregnancy test. They verify whether or not they're pregnant in ultrasound and she was being heavily pressured into an abortion by her father. He called Planned Parenthood in an attempt to schedule an appointment and where we're at, our building is right here and it's like one, two, three, four, Planned Parenthood's right here. We're literally next door to each other, which has all kinds of interesting ramifications. So you think about that situation. Now, this is not just a, a female issue. The fathers and, and the, the father of the, the woman who's pregnant, the, the father of the child who she's bearing, ministry to men on this issue could not be more important. Against the pressure she chose life she came to the center regularly during her pregnancy and we encouraged to follow her follow up on her appointments she's finishing her degree getting herself an apartment 
attended classes about you know, infant safety and car seat safety, things of that nature. The center threw her a mini baby shower and she delivered a baby boy. She sat with the staff members and volunteers for two hours to talk about motherhood, to give and share advice. She's a thriving mother and adores her son. Isn't that good? Get close. I don't know if you got community groups, gospel communities, life groups, home groups, whatever they are. Like, could your group do something about that? Help her? And I know this church is like, yeah, we're in. Good night. You guys are starting a fund for adoption. Or I love it. <laughs> so keep going. Another one that's kind of bittersweet. We had a client come in for a pregnancy test. She was unsure of her options and was considering abortion, but was completely unaware of what happened during abortion. So we educated her on what an abortion is and what her options were. She's 20 years old. When we described what an abortion is, she was visibly hesitant and disturbed. She's in a stable dating relationship. She came back for an ultrasound, and after the ultrasound, made a decision to choose life. She continued to see our doctor. There's another thing. If you're a doctor or medical professional, there's help that you can do. We, there's help, especially if you're an OGBYN, so I don't know. She came back for follow-up visit. She ended up moving to another state with her boyfriend. She planned to graduate and get married. We sent her off for the baby shower, connected her with a local pregnancy center in that new area. We received this email back. Thank you so much for all the help I was offered at New Day Pregnancy Care Center. I remember being frightened when I found out I was pregnant. But with all the support through you guys, I was able to stay positive and get on the right path. I married my partner and graduated with my associate's degree over the summer. I've accomplished so much this rough year, and it's thanks to you I was able to birth my beautiful son. Unfortunately, oh no, excuse me, he was the best thing to happen to me. Unfortunately, the day of my due date, I went to the hospital to be induced, and my little boy did not have a heartbeat. I had to birth him knowing that he would be an angel. I want to thank you so much for being there and making sure I had what I needed. You all are doing amazing things. And so if you were to ask the people at New Day, are they doing amazing things? They wouldn't say, they, not, no, I'm, I'm just here. But as Christians, it grows out of this conviction that we're all made in the image of God. Every man, woman, and child. And because of that, they're worth of our love, our dignity, and our support. And yes, they've worshipped idols, and we've worshipped idols, and only in Christ can all of us be restored. But if we've been restored and raised up with Jesus Christ, then we have the absolute privilege and the responsibility to promote a culture of life, and dignity, and love. And so may God help our churches to be colonies of life, communities of life, in a culture of death. Father, thank you for Bethel Baptist Church and the light of the gospel that shines from here. So much, Lord, I thank you. I thank you for other churches I know they're in partnership with here in Wilmington. I thank you for Door of Hope. I thank you for the Green Beret Project. I thank you for these nonprofits that are specializing in certain areas, and I pray that there would be a harmonious relationship between the church and the parachurch. And I pray that in it all, the Holy Spirit would empower us to see Jesus more clearly than we ever have before. 
and be compelled to get close, just like you did with us, Jesus. You didn't save us from heaven. You came to earth and got close, felt what we felt, knew what we knew, and yet you were victorious. So, Lord, I pray you'd help us to grow in Christ-likeness. I pray that we would be a community of life. In Jesus' name, amen.